A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to the History of England, episode 52, John Softsword. For the book this week, I thought I'd recommend Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror by Lisa Hilton. I have to confess I've not read it personally, but I did hear Lisa being interviewed and she sounded really good. Matilda was clearly a formidable person in her own right, and she and William were very close partners until they fell out over their son Robert, so I'm sure there's a great story to tell. If any of you do read it, or have read it, let me know what you think. Plus, just as a general point, it'd be good to get recommendations from any of you about history books you particularly enjoyed. Stephen got in touch recently to recommend a book by Joseph Husinger called Waning of the Middle Ages, which looked really interesting, so I'm going to give that a go. So do pop along to the website or Facebook or wherever and make any recommendations you think people might be interested in. OK, so when we left John in September 1199, he'd really been as effective as he'd ever been in his 31 years. A few months later, in January 1200, he signed the Treaty of Ligoulet with Philip. Here are the main terms. Philip gave full recognition to John as Richard's heir, and abandoned any support for Arthur of Brittany. As far as John was concerned, this of course was great. In return, the treaty recognised the situation in Normandy as it was at the time of the truce. So this meant that Philip kept a few frontier fiefs, which were demilitarised. Philip's heir, Louis, was to marry John's niece, Blanche of Castile. And he'd be given Gisors as a dowry. Now Gisors had been a big point of contention between Richard and Philip, but Philip had held it anyway for a while, and Richard's best efforts had failed to dislodge him. John also then had to give away some land in Bury, but as far as the territory thing was concerned... All of this was probably okay as far as John was concerned. He then had to give 20,000 marks to Philip as his feudal lord, as a relief for inheriting his lands. We've not mentioned reliefs for a while. This was the traditional payment a tenant had to make to his feudal lord when he came into his inheritance. So there's nothing novel about it. It's all perfectly acceptable under the feudal rules. In addition, John agreed to abandon his alliances with the Count of Flanders and Boulogne in particular, and also with Otto IV, the Holy Roman Emperor. At first sight, this looks like a pretty good deal for John. But most historians agree that it was something of a potential nightmare. The loss of some territory was probably disappointing but worth it. 20,000 marks, mm, a lot of money, but probably okay. The loss of his alliances, now they were more serious. Richard had effectively managed to increase the size of his army considerably for free, through the war waged by Flanders and Boulogne on the King of France, and John would now be without this. But the really big one, funnily enough, was the legal situation. Henry and Richard had never had to pay a relief, and the homage Henry had made to the King of France had been purely nominal. Philip had re-established the legal supremacy of the Kings of France, and it would cost John dearly in the long run. Some of the other clauses in that treaty made that supremacy clear. John was required to receive the rebellious lords of Angoulême and Limoges back into his favour, for example. 
and that thing about having to abandon the alliance is a Flanders in Boulogne, well that made John look very weak. So historians are in general agreement that in one way or another this treaty was a success for Philip. But it is nicely balanced. John would have felt mightily relieved to have bought a piece relatively cheaply. And this thing about the legal supremacy of the King of France, well, it had always been there in the background. The real issue had always been the lack of power in France to make it a reality. France now had a King in Philip who was clever and strong enough and who was determined to make it stick. So I suspect he'd have found a way whatever the legal situation. And I have quite a bit of sympathy, therefore, with John that it was probably pretty much okay. On the other hand, John had been in a very dominant position in September, and the Treaty of Ligule represents a rather weaker treaty than you might have expected. So you've got to ask what went wrong. Now, one of the traditional explanations is that Richard had bled his country dry of money. The cupboard was bare, the people were impoverished, all that sort of thing. And that this meant that John had to call a halt at whatever price because he couldn't keep fighting. Some of the evidence for this is the amount of money that's extracted from Normandy at the time, which shows that Richard had extracted a lot more in 1198 than he had in 1195. Also, Roger of Hoveden wrote in 1198 about England, By these and other vexations, whether justly or unjustly, the whole of England from sea to sea was reduced to poverty. And then the 1198 pipe prole in England shows that £25,000 was raised by the exchequer in that year, which by previous standards was a lot of money. But to set against that, look at the amount of money that John was able to raise from England later. So in 1211, for example, he raised £81,000. And as for chroniclers, this is hardly the first time that a king has been accused of raising too much taxation and riding his subjects too hard. And then as for Normandy, it is in fact likely that there would have been a considerable inflow of English money into the country. That was where the war and the action was. That was where the major projects, such as the building of Chateau Gaillard, happened. It is, of course, pretty much impossible to know for sure. But it's by no means a gimme that the Angevin Empire no longer had the means to pay for its own defence. Another explanation, of course, was that John was a wimp and no good as a negotiator. And, of course, that's the answer that contemporary opinion hit on. In his youth, John had been called Lackland, because unlike his brother, he didn't have his own inheritance. Now they called him Soft Sword. The historian John Gilliam had another explanation, and rather ingenious, if a bit complicated. His argument was that John had already lost the trust of his allies by the time it came to negotiate the Treaty of Ligule. The trigger for this was Arthur of Brittany, so, when John had marched to Anjou, William de Roche had advised Constance and Arthur that they should submit to John, and so they did. John forced their ally to hand over the castle of Chinon, and then suddenly Arthur and his mother took fright, and they slipped away, taking refuge in Angers. They then fled to Philip's court, and the point of this is that they didn't trust John, and they feared he'd put Arthur in prison. At the same time, John did indeed lose his allies. A number of French barons, including the Count of Flanders, took the cross, abandoning John. Now whether or not you believe, Gilliam, that this was partly motivated by their distrust of John and therefore loss of enthusiasm for the war, it is at least certain that John had lost valuable allies. And as we said a while ago, this meant effectively a loss of treasure, power and negotiating position. He was just left with Otto IV, 
who John was forced to abandon in the treaty. But look, don't draw breath and relax. Just because John had got himself a treaty didn't mean that things were now going to settle down. From a pretty good start, John was to commit some mega howlers that brought the whole house down. The thing that I really like about the sequence of events that led to war was just how hard John had to work at it. I mean, he really had to think it through, because Philip was occupied with other things. And while very likely hated the Angevins and despised John, he had written postpone in his personal diary against the defeat and utterly destroy the Angevin Empire task. I can't remember if I've mentioned it, but the reason for Philip's distraction was a bit of a Barney with the Pope. Philip had decided to marry Ingeborg of Denmark. The two of them got married in 1193, but after just one night of marital bliss, Philip repudiated the poor lass and tried to send her back to Daddy. You do have to ask what happened on their wedding night, what could have gone on. But anyway, this had seriously soured relationships with the Pope, who rejected Philip's attempt to divorce her. Philip simply ignored the Pope and tried to marry Margaret of Geneva. However, on her way north, Margaret was captured by Thomas of Savoy, who then married her. As normal, history doesn't record what Margaret felt about this forceful behaviour, but it does record that she had a magnificent 14 children. So if not happy, the marriage was certainly productive. Nor am I sure what Philip thought about all this, but I imagine he was a little miffed, though he doesn't seem to have been too worried in that he just looked for another wife instead and hit upon Agnes, who he married in 1196. Just to finish that little story off, by the way, Philip did eventually take Inga back in 1213, after she had spent 20 years locked away in a castle. Presumably he said something like, look, let's just put the past behind us. So, why am I telling you all of this? Well, the rather laboriously made point is that Philip had a major fight on his hands with the papacy, and this got worse around this time, with France under interdict in 1199 and 1201. So Philip probably really wanted a fight with John at some point, but he really didn't want it now. But as I say, John, bless him, worked out a way to change his mind for him. It all revolves around another marriage, i.e. John's. But I know what you're thinking. Surely John is already married to the lovely, or more importantly wealthy, Isabel of Gloucester. He'd been betrothed in 1173 when she was three and he seven. And then they'd married in 1189, and John also thereby became Earl of Gloucester. There were always questions about the marriage, because they were too closely related, since they were both great-grandchildren of Henry I. The Archbishop of Canterbury had put their lands under interdict, but the Pope lifted it and approved the marriage, on the strict condition that they didn't have sex. History again does not record whether sex was or was not had, but it does record that John had a roving eye and was definitely not safe in taxes and was not happy with where he was. So he put Isabel aside, kept her lands for himself and went back onto the marriage market. Unfortunately, I need to go back a bit to set up this all-important marriage. We've not mentioned Aquitaine yet as regards John and this was because it wasn't formally held by John's right, but by his mother Eleanor. She had very prudently nipped along to Philip in 1199 and did homage to him for her lands and everything was fine. In September 1200, she formally transferred legal title to John. In the Treaty of Ligule, you'll also remember that Philip had insisted that John receive back into his favour one Count Ima of Angoulême. And this was because Ima of Angoulême, in common with many of the barons in that part of the world, did not take kindly to towing the party line 
and constantly caused trouble for the Angevins. Imer had gone further than most and actually changed his allegiance to Philip. And in fact, of course, Richard had died in front of the castle of the Viscount of Limoges, who was a nephew of Imer of Angoulême. But Richard had managed to establish a good relationship with the other major family of the area, the Lusignan, in the form of Hugh de Lusignan. This was despite some reasonably unhappy history, given that it was the Lusignan who had killed Patrick of Salisbury while trying to kidnap Henry II's bride Eleanor. This was when William the Marshal had been taken hostage, if you can remember that far back. OK, so sorry about all the hideous name stuff, but just keep in your mind, I'm a Count of Angoulême on one hand, and Hugh de Lusignan on the other. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So this is a tight-knit and volatile world of proud families and intermingled relationships. Angoulême and the Lusignan were sometimes allies, sometimes rivals. Hugh de Lusignan, though, had recently managed to get himself the valuable county of La Marche, which both the counts of Angoulême and the Lusignan had been trying to get their hands on for ages. This alarmed and distressed Imer of Angoulême mightily, but he decided to take the grown-up way out of the potential difficulty and make friends with the Lusignan rather than starting a war. And he did this in the traditional feudal manner, by promising to marry his daughter Isabel to Hugh de Lusignan. Into this world stormed John in August 1200, young, free, and now single. He rocked up to the court of Imer, and there in front of him was this apparently bewitching 12-year-old girl. According to the chroniclers, he was smitten, and he asked their dad if he could marry her. Now, of course, these days, we'd call the police. But in those days, marriage at such an age was by no means unheard of, though normally the format would have been betrothal for three or four years and a marriage when she'd grown up a bit. Anyway, Ima could see the advantages and was not at all offended. Now, the chronicles loved a bit of gossip, so it's probably inevitable that they presented the affair as John being a helpless slave to his passion. But there was also a good, solid reason for this marriage. The Counts of Angoulême had been a massive problem for the Angevins, and now here was a way to get them into the tent. And if he'd found a way to break it gently to Hugh de Lusignan, make sure he got some compensation for him stealing his bride, then probably everything could have been fine. But John did no such thing. In October 1200, he married his child bride in Westminster Abbey and took her down to Wiltshire. It's a feature of John's character that he just couldn't bring himself to be generous in victory. He had managed to stuff the Lusignan, and that was that. He set off on a royal tour around his kingdom, not worried about a thing. But meanwhile, John's mother knew that everything was not as quiet as John would like to think. Angoulême and La Marche were part of her Duchy of Aquitaine, of course, and she had contacts. Those contacts told her that trouble was brewing. From her retirement at the Abbey of Fontevraud, she wrote to John, and got influential men to find him and tell him to do something, but all to no avail. And John, in fact, actually turned up the heat, sending his sheriffs to take over the running of La Marche from the Lusignan, and that was enough for Hugh. Hugh appealed to John's feudal overlord, Philip, for justice, 
and he took to open warfare against John and his officials. John then responded, calling out his lords and feudal army to Portsmouth. When they arrived, he simply took off them all the money they had and sent them home, and then went and raised some mercenaries. His barons were not at all happy at such high-handed behaviour, but for now they were prepared to leave it. Philip was frankly rather embarrassed by the Lusignan appeal. Again, he had these problems of his own. So he tried to patch things up. He invited John to Paris and wined and dined him at his palace at Fontainebleau. Interestingly enough, we can trace French contempt for English taste right back to these days, even though John was more French than English. One of the French chroniclers wrote, After he'd gone, the King of France and all his people had a good laugh at the way the people of the English king had drunk all of the bad wines and left all the good ones. Anyway, Philip persuaded the Lusignan to stop their fighting and persuaded John that as long as he allowed the Lusignan to have their day in court and gave them the chance to be heard, he'd take no further action. Great, so that was that then. Crisis over. No, not a bit of it. John could hardly have been more provocative. He clearly said something like, right, so they want a day in court, do they? Well, I'll give them a day in court. And he charged the Lusignan with treason. And then decided that the method of determining the truth should be trial by battle, on the basis that since he was king, he had the biggest budget and could therefore hire the biggest fighter. The Lusignan clearly thought the same. So guess what? They appealed to Philip. So now Philip's getting a bit irritable and he ordered John to get the thing done. John prevaricated, ducked and weaved, twisted and turned and eventually set a date for the trial but refused to give the Lusignan a safe conduct to the trial. So guess what? The Lusignan appealed to Philip. So that was pretty much it for Philip. He ordered John to give him three castles which he'd only get back once justice had been done. John gave him a whole load of blarney, but Philip was having none of it, and by Easter 1202 he'd finally had enough. He ordered John to appear in Paris before a court of French nobles. John kept twisting. He appealed to the ancient custom that the Duke of Normandy had the right to be heard at Gisors, to which Philip pointed out that he was being summoned as the Duke of Aquitaine, not the Duke of Normandy. John's wriggling was almost done. He was firmly on the hook, and he knew it. So he agreed to come but then simply didn't turn up. His father had got away with this, but Philip was made of stronger stuff than his father, and John was made of flimsier stuff than his, so this was war. The Peace of Ligule had lasted just two years, when on 28th of April, 1202, Philip and his barons declared that John was guilty of failing to give the justice he owed, that he had failed to give his feudal overlord his due, and he was therefore no longer his vassal, and would be stripped of all the lands he held of him. Hate it or loathe it, this war was John's fault. He displayed all the character flaws that would bring him down. He was vindictive towards the Lusignan. He was dishonest. He could not bring himself to do the right thing if it got in the way of his pride. Basically, in technical terms, he'd just been a blithering idiot. It is in all likelihood true that Philip was looking for an opportunity to start a fight sometime, but there was hardly any point in John provoking it before he was ready. Which, of course, he wasn't. So he sent out his recruiting agents to raise him an army of mercenaries and sat behind his screen of castles until he had what he needed. Philip, meanwhile, had a plan. It was a well-trodden plan. So well-trodden that holes were appearing in the pile and parts had clearly been chewed by the dog, but plan it was. He invested Arthur of Brittany as the new Count of Anjou, Maine and Touraine. 
Arthur would then sweep down the Loire Valley from Brittany and cut John's empire in half. He would be ably supported by the Lusignan attacking from further south, moving north into the Loire Valley. There's a nice simple map, by the way, on the website www.thehistoryofengland.com. Meanwhile, Philip would be attacking into Normandy, both attacking John's heartland and distracting him from Arthur's attack. And at this point, something rather surprising happens. The snippet of military fare that John has showed in the first campaign turned out not to be a fluke. It all started well enough for Philip and Arthur, since John didn't have the manpower initially. Philip swept up and started besieging Norman castles. Further south, Arthur swept into Maine, and we get a bit of a dramatic chase scene with a suitably dramatic ending. Eleanor at Fontevraud was threatened by Arthur's advance, so the old lady fled for Poitou further south. Arthur got wind of this and decided that his enemy's mother would be a good thing to get hold of and started in hot pursuit. John received a desperate letter from Eleanor from Le Mans as Arthur closed on her fast and John was still far to the north in Normandy. Eleanor was caught at a place called Mirabeau. By the 31st of July, the rebels had burned the town and Eleanor was trapped inside the keep. Hopefully, you are suitably perched on the edge of your seat. Arthur, Hugh and Geoffrey de Lusignan felt pretty comfortable. They'd barricaded all the gates of the town except for one and John was miles away, so there should be no problems. Well, you probably guess what happened next. John put a flying column through a forced march of 80 miles in two days. On the way, they picked up a man called William de Roche, John's powerful seneschal for Anjou, who knew the area very well and could lead the attack. Early the next morning, they picked up at Mirabeau, took Arthur and Geoffrey completely by surprise, so much so that Geoffrey was still eating his breakfast pigeon when John's men swept around him. It was a total success. No figure of any importance escaped. John had rescued the damsel in distress in the castle and had captured one of his main opponents, Arthur. Mirabeau was a complete military triumph, a gold-plated, copper-bottomed, honest-to-goodness, no-poo triumph. Arthur and Geoffrey de Lusignan were banged up in Falaise in Normandy with Hubert de Burr as his jailer, while Hugh de Lusignan was sent to Caen and the lesser lords to Corfe in Dorset. The world was officially John's lobster. John's treatment of the Poitevin and Angevin barons seems to have varied on a wide scale between brutal and buttock-clenchingly brutal. Hugh de Lusignan was kept tightly held up in Caen. No one was able to talk to him unless accompanied by three named knights. Twenty-two of the knights in Corfe were to end up starving to death, though this is not strictly John's fault. It appears they broke out and were then contained in the castle, and they starved to death rather than surrender, which I would call genuine commitment. Arthur himself was sent to Rouen with a number of knights, and it was soon heard that many of the knights had been starved to death. The only person who seems to have been decently treated was Eleanor, Arthur's sister. Although she was indeed confined to a castle, even when she becomes the only surviving heiress to Brittany, John sent her presents and gives her lots of freedom. So there you go, a man of contradiction. Anyway, then, as the famous saying goes, John managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. John's successes in Anjou, Men and Touraine, had so far been tied up with William de Roche. William had shown himself as the kind of man like William the Marshal who took his feudal responsibilities seriously. He'd stood by Henry II to the very end, fighting by the Marshal's side against Richard in Henry's final journey. He'd then fought by Richard's side on the Crusades, 
but when Richard died, he'd had a conflict of loyalty between Arthur and John and chosen Arthur. John's ability in 1199 to persuade William to change sides and to fight for him had been an absolutely crucial part of his success in claiming the Angevin inheritance. John's failure to keep William at his side was to be just as crucial in his losing it. By 1201, William was even more powerful in men in Anjou since he'd married an heiress in Marguerite de Sablé, who, in the words of Monty Python, brought vast tracts of land in Maine and Anjou. When William joined the expedition to Mirabeau, it looks as though he already had his doubts about John. So he'd insisted that if they were successful, he, William, would have a full say in what happened to the prisoners, that they would be well treated, and that he would have a full share of the spoils. Unfortunately, once he'd won, John turned all arrogant and over-self-confident again. So you can picture the scene. William would have watched the treatment of the prisoners with growing alarm. I've no idea if he had a moral objection, but the point was that his advice was ignored, and Arthur was removed from his reach. John was making the point that he was the boss, and William had better realise it and treat him with proper deference. William had no desire whatsoever to behave with proper deference, and before August was out, he'd deserted John's cause and holed up with another local count. William was a man of enormous power and local influence. So with him went other major landowners, such as Amory of Thouar. John acted quickly, stripping William of his position as Seneschal and sending soldiers to take hold of the royal castle at Angers and Tours. He split William's job into two, replacing him as Seneschal with Bryce the Chamberlain and Martin Algué. These men were mercenaries rather than local landowners. But by October, William was active and had already scored his first successes attacking and taking the castle at Angers. By December, things had got even worse, as a rumour started to circulate that poor old Arthur had not only been imprisoned, but also murdered. But also murdered. Actually, in December, this was not true. There are no certainties about what actually happened with Arthur, but one of the chroniclers records that John was advised that he should blind and castrate him to remove him as a threat. Fortunately for Arthur at this point, his jailer Hubert de Burr thought this barbarous and self-defeating, which is a fair point, because I'm trying to imagine the conversation which goes, Major Baron, John, I hear you have killed Arthur of Brittany. If this is so, I will revoke my allegiance to you. Speak. King John, no, no, I've only had him blinded and castrated. He's fine. You can probably hear him laughing happily. Major Baron, you are indeed merciful and good with children, sire. So Hubert instead gave out the message that Arthur was dead. This was equally stupid, however, since everyone then believed that Arthur was dead and that John had killed him. Oops, no, no, Hubert said I didn't mean it, he's not really dead. But unfortunately, by this time, nobody believed his retraction and opinion in France was outraged, particularly in Brittany, of course. Typically, John panicked and ended up making it all worse. In January 1203, he tried to patch it up with the Lusignan to counterbalance the disaster of the De Roche defection. Hugh and Ralph promised faithfully to be loyal to be John. Yeah, we forgive you. Yeah, we love you. Sure, sure. And at the moment they were back home, declared for Philip. Hugh, of course, created trouble for John then in the south. But brother Ralph of Lusignan was the man that Richard had married to the heiress in the county of Ur in Normandy. So this also caused plenty of trouble in the Norman heartlands.
So, I think we'll leave John there in January 1203, watching the leaks appearing all over his dyke, and hear the rest of the story next week. I need to finish, though, with some thank yous. There was a great response to my iTunes appeal, so now I am pleased to announce that I have over 50 ratings on both the UK and US sites. My cup runneth over. The comments are all very nice, so thank you. But the prize has to go to Matthew, who complimented my Winnie impression. Matthew, thank you. I mean, thank you. Let me tell you, this is the first time I've ever had a compliment for an impression. And also, let me tell you, there could be so many more. Now, I'm going to have a week off. I mean, you will hear my voice next week, but you'll hear the words of Melisande of Outremer as part of her occasional series on women in history. Given that we've just said goodbye to Eleanor of Aquitaine, it seemed appropriate to have a retrospective review of her life. And so this is exactly what we shall have. You can also find out much more about women in history by going to Melisande's blog at womenofhistory.blogspot.com. And so, finally at last, my special thanks to Peter and Steve for your donations, and thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck, everybody, and have a great couple of weeks. <laughs>